Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. G'day. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Chris Farnham and this is the podcast that looks at the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. We're brought to you by policyforum.net and the National Security College at the ANU. Be sure to have a look at policyforum.net for some in-depth discussion and research on regional policy challenges and take a look at nsc.anu.edu.au if you're interested in postgraduate studies in national security policy making. And today on the podcast we are going to be continuing Continuing with the maritime theme by taking a closer look at the Indian Ocean region and some of the strategic issues that India is grappling with as the regional power equation evolves. And we are going to be talking to Miss Darshana Barua. She is an Associate Director and Senior Research Analyst with Carnegie India and her work focuses on the Indian Navy and its role in the new security architecture. In 2016, Darshana was was a National Parliamentary Fellow in Australia, where her research focused on India and Australia in the Indo-Pacific. For Dashana's full bio, please have a look at our website. And today we are going to be talking to Dashana on the security environment in the Indian Ocean and how that has been impacted by China's Belt and Road Initiative, India's border conflicts and the changing nature of the US leadership in the Indo-Pacific. And before we do that, I'd like to give a quick shout out to Digby Howis, who got in touch with us via Twitter, asking if we could take a look at domestic security in China in regards to extremism and counterterrorism, specifically in its western regions that border Central Asia. We at the National Security Podcast think that is an excellent suggestion, and we have started organising an eminent subject matter expert to come and speak to us on these exact points. So keep your ears out for that. And if you want to be on on top of all of this information of the podcasts that are coming through, don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you pod with. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can do that by hitting us up on Twitter by using Apps Policy Forum, on Facebook by using Asia Pacific Policy Society, or you can email us at podcast at policyforum.net. But now, let's speak to Darshana. G'day, Darshana. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. Thank you, Chris. Thank you so much. Always good to be back in Australia, especially to the National Security College. Thank you. And what is it that's brought you to Australia this time around? A conference on on uh, Europe and the Indo-Pacific, so really talking about what's happening in the region, the different perspectives of Indo-Pacific in the region, which includes India, Australia, Japan. And we're hearing more about Europe and the Indo-Pacific, so a perspective from both sides, from Europe and from Asia, really on what is going on, um, uh, what are the different variations of the Indo-Pacific policy or strategy in the respective countries and where it fits, where it diverges and how the countries can work together. 
Do you find a lot of synergies or divergence in um, the different perspectives on the Indo-Pacific? And just to run through some of them, you've got the free and open Indo-Pacific from Japan, free and open Indo-Pacific from America. You've got Australia in the Indo-Pacific and the white paper that was just recently brought out. You've got India's look east and act east policy. You've got this convergence of regional Indo-Pacific strategies. Are they complementing each other or do they intersect in ways that may be uncomfortable? What's your opinion on this? Um, I think for every country, it's an evolving policy and a strategy that everyone is trying to figure out where their national interest fits in or what the strategy means to the respective countries. But I think at the core of the strategy, where I think is a commonality between that runs throughout all of these countries is the focus on partnerships that a concept like Indo-Pacific has to be based on the pillar of partnerships that countries have to work together and collaborate together. And in most cases than not, I feel because of their own national strategy and fundamental differences in their approaches to maritime security, um, there, despite there are challenges in this, but there is a common uh, vision in terms of how you want to see the region that protecting the current security architecture is one. And second is even if you're seeing the evolution or the emergence of a new security architecture that is not driven by uh, the voice of one country and its competitor, that it is whatever comes into place next, the order that comes into place next should be a culmination of the interest in the voices of all the powers that reside in this region. And that's where we are also seeing a lot more conversation about the collaboration between middle powers, that what do they want to do? I think that's a commonality that I see in the Indo-Pacific strategy. But there's also confusion. There's also questions on all of this in almost every country. I was, I just spent two, uh, I just spent two months in Japan over the summer and and if this happens when I'm in Australia, it happens when I'm in the in the United States. And there are questions all the time about India, and you know, and they're pretty much similar questions on on really what India is thinking about the Indo-Pacific strategy and the the parts where they find it confusing, the parts where they find it similar to the ones that they are looking at, there are the parts where they are not clear whether India is going to go side A or side B. And really these conversations, a lot of it I think we'll probably discuss through the podcast. But We most definitely will. And before we even really get into the meat of this podcast and this discussion, there's one country that we're somewhat dense around here and this is the country that has essentially powered or driven this convergence of Indo-Pacific strategies and that's China. It used to have the One Belt, One Road strategy or name for, for their outreach into the region and that's changed recently to the Belt and Road Initiative. Now, you were just mentioning how throughout the region, a lot of the countries are looking to have, uh, rather than just two competing visions, that there is numerous visions, numerous pathways and numerous approaches. Uh, is this part of why China changed it from one belt, one road? Do you even see that these convergence of regional strategies are all responses to China's expansion in the region or are there multiple drivers creating this convergence of strategies? I think uh, China definitely is a big factor in this, in the new environment that we're seeing because, I mean, up until now, there was no real competition or there wasn't any challenges, whether you look at South Asia or you look at Indian Ocean region or the broader global level, you know, we were comf- everybody was comfortable with their 
kind of the architecture that we had. And of course, you had uh, uh, kind of competitions in sub pockets, but not at the grand scale that you are seeing competition today. And that's primarily because you have a, a new rising power who's able to kind of drive that competition and challenge it. And uh, and I don't think so. It's any different than any of the times in the history that we've seen a rising power trying to, you know, establish its might in the in the region. And it's just that the only difference is today um, that rising powers um, in the past uh, or global powers in the past have worked in a different security environment. And today what China is doing it is a different security environment. A lot of it is probably responses. But I think today we have gone beyond that a little bit that, you know, you cannot just probably drive or sustain a strategy you cannot sustain a response strategy. You have to somewhere take into account the fact that, okay, this is a change that has happens, happened, and this is how it affects my national security or my strategic ambitions. And you've got to somewhere uh, draft a strategy which basically moving it from reactive to proactive. That's the only way you can sustain it, especially for a country like India with its limitations in geography and resources and you know our policies, which is so much different than the Western powers that we are working with today. So it it definitely, China has been a factor in driving that because that's brought about the change in the security environment. But it's now it's kind of gone a little beyond that in the sense that China remains the factor. But you have to work with the assumption that the change is coming. So how best can you consolidate your interest within that? And that leads us to take a bit of a step back to understand the context that India, or that has brought India to where it is now. So I'd like to ask what India's strategic perspective is on the region, specifically asking what is strategic autonomy and how India's approach to the region has changed in the pre-Modi era to the current era that we're in. So, uh, I mean, India's had the strategic autonomy since um, uh, independence and, you know, it's 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 really the story of a country which just came out of colonial rule and trying to make its mark and then as an independent country and we had a non-alignment uh, strategy, which we still do, really able to make your choices, strategic choices, based on your own resources and your interest and your capabilities in how far can you extend what resource. So, and not having to align it or, you know, be compelled to do it with what your friends or partners are doing it, right? Your strategic autonomy is yours. You have the autonomy to make a decision based on your strategic interest. Um, that's where also where we've seen India kind of act or, you know, India has always been a lone actor, kind of. It, does, it did not do many partnerships the way we are seeing it today, and which is really the difference in the pre-Modi and uh, Prime Minister Modi and uh, post uh, his um, coming to power in 2014, is that India has placed a lot of importance in partnerships, that the understanding that the task at hand and the environment today is very different than a decade ago, and that we might not have the resources or the capabilities to respond to that alone, and we might have to work with our friends. But that also came with a policy shift where you had to understand, which I think was a blur uh, in the previous administration, was that you had to understand that strategic alignment is not the same as an alliance, that just because you are working with friends and partners on areas that you see a convergence doesn't mean you are actually forming an alliance because alliance is a different concept altogether. And I just want to state that we are very much still a non-aligned country. We do not do alliances, but we do alignments, if that makes sense. 
So no friends, just interests? No friends, just interests. Well, you know, interests, yeah. So interests stay prominent, but friends too. I mean, uh, through which we have seen, we've seen evolution of our partnerships, right? With the Americans, we've seen a huge development and growth in that area. Um, India and Australia have been um, really, uh, you know, two countries on 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 the either side of the Indian Ocean, but we hadn't seen that much cooperation that we're seeing today. And there was it wasn't that there was huge animosity between the two countries. It's just that there was limitations on both sides, and there was little that they saw was conversions in interest, and because geography was you know it was so distant from each other India which is very interesting considering that we both come from a, a similar colonial history right. and we have shared parliamentary systems right. to a large degree and we have a lot of shared values but right. our, our interests didn't really align we're in two different realities right yes and because i think with australia also you know you i mean you know it's it's one country where you're like is it the western world is it asia you're kind of you know in the cusp of two you have both what happens in the Pacific affects Australia. What happens in the Indian Ocean affects in, um, Australia. For India, Pacific is a secondary area of interest. Primary is Indian Ocean region. So there were differences because, again, for national security and interest, right? Uh, with Japan, we've had a great kind of uh, uh, political and diplomatic relationships right after independence. And, you know, when Japan came out of the war and it was trying to establish its diplomatic and political relationship, uh, India was one of the first countries to host the uh, uh, the Japanese leadership at that point in time. Economic relationship has been great, but we hadn't seen the strategic convergence as much until Modi and Abe, because now we're seeing that there is something that can be done or there is an interest. It's the environment that has changed. It isn't that these countries are new in India's uh, policy thinking or strategic thinking is just that now you see a specific role and a driver that, that is there and then political will really that has come both from India and the other countries to work together and that's why you see more of these partnerships. So getting back to what you were saying before about having a national strategy, it seems that previously uh, before there was such a deep interconnectedness throughout the Indo-Pacific that India actually had the luxury to determine its own strategy. And now India is, the strategic uh, context has changed. As you said, different powers are rising and there is greater interconnection between the Pacific and the Indian Ocean region. Whereabouts is India on that spectrum that you were mentioning about having a reactionary strategy to shaping its strategy to include its own drivers and interests? Is India somewhere along that journey now? I think we started off with a very reactionary policy that, you know, we began to react to what was happening in our neighborhood. And I think the reaction itself came a little late. So, uh, but today I think we are at that cost where we are moving from reactive to proactive. But at the end of the day, we are a democracy. I mean, you know, we are, you know, it's foreign policy shifts don't happen overnight, so it will take time. But there is an understanding that probably that it has to move from reactive to proactive. You... Initial response was, you know, it was a reaction to changes in your neighborhood, which you had kind of, you know, which was your environment since uh, since at least the end of the Cold War. And suddenly today it was changing. So the first response was to see, OK, what can be done? And that's not sustainable because, you know, it's not a it's not a one time a reaction. It's 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 not a one-time change, and uh, the continuation of that has led to the thinking that it has to be proactive, but it is going to take time before you can actually 
pinpoint and be like, okay, here is the point that India moved from a reactive to a proactive or that, you know, this was the strategy in 2010 and this is the strategy in 2015. There is going to be some time before you are able to make these sharp distinctions. You can see some shifts. You can see some see developments which you as a, you know, as a researchers, we can say that this is different than what it was five years ago or this is what the new development has led. But I don't think so. We still have a concrete strategy which says, okay, this is India's new strategy vis-a-vis the Indo-Pacific. I think it's work in progress. Mm-hmm. So you, you, we've mentioned the Cold War a couple of times and India has brought with it some of the strategic um, context of the Cold War, namely looking at some of the uh, land-based challenges that India faces. It has some disputed border, border regions, namely with both Pakistan and China. We recently saw um, confrontation on the Doklam Plateau between uh, India and China. How how does India um, deal with this tension in terms of resource allocation between having to uh, remain uh, a land force in its region to protect what it sees as its um, its territories, but also respond to this new rising challenge in the maritime space? Uh, j- just a point of clarification: the Doklam Plateau is—it's uh, really the where it happened. It's actually a tri-junction, right, so it's India, course, India, Bhutan, China, yeah. and Bhutan, and yep. that's how India had come into the uh, picture. But uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, in terms of allocation of resources, if you want, in terms of numbers, our defense uh, budget. Uh, 55% goes to the Army, 23 goes to the Air Force, and about 15 comes to the Navy. It goes up and down every year, but that's pretty much like the average. So it gives you a pretty clear idea of our defense, really our defense interest, which is uh, which is the continental border. And rightly so, but as you pointed out, we have two uh, contentious and uh, hotspots on our eastern and western borders, eastern with China, western with Pakistan. We've gone to war with both. And that is really an existential crisis. You know, that's something that is more of an imminent threat that from the sea, really, you know, the Indian Ocean was an area of strategic advantage because, you know, you India did not really see any competition as such or any threat coming into India from sea. I mean, um, in 2008, we had um, attacks that happened on Mumbai that came through uh, the coast of Mumbai. That was probably the first one that we had seen some sort of like threat at some level which had come in from the sea which led to a revision of our kind of our maritime like at least our coastal security and 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 from there leading up to uh, from territorial waters to the exclusive economic zones but beyond that the Indian Ocean has been an area of uh, you know your advantage because you had a strong navy you didn't have much competition geography was on your side you had a pretty big uh, uh, force um, but it wasn't anything like the continental forces that we had we had kind of seen. So all of our attention was always continental. But today, as you mentioned, it's different. It's, again, still not at the level of the border conflicts. We do not see that intense threat, really. It's more of a competition. It's really a struggle to keep the advantage that you already have, keep it maintained so that you don't have to do much around it if you have if you maintain the advantage right but there has been a realization but again we are, are we have our limitations so with working within that limitations i think that the army would probably keep getting priority in the defense budget simply because of the threats that we have so the only way you can really respond to the competition that's coming out in the indian ocean region is through partnerships 
that you know you can't do it by yourself that you don't have to do it by yourself uh, there are other countries on similar um, uh, environments like you who have similar their converging interests and you can work with these countries to uh, create an environment that works in your favor. Mm, partnerships become a force multiplier in very literal yes. terms. Yeah. Um, so let's let's have a look at the challenge that's in the maritime space. Previously, there we used to talk a lot about the string of pearls strategy. This was a strategy or a, an emerging outcome that was seeing China become more involved in the Indian Ocean region and looking to invest in certain ports along the Indian Ocean, Ocean littoral. That Monica seems to have died away. However, China's efforts to become involved in infrastructure projects in the region have only increased. You've written that, well, first off, actually, let me ask, what is it about China's presence in the Indian Ocean region that uh, alarms India? We see China becoming more active in this region for access to the um, energy sources in the Middle East, uh, raw materials in Africa, and also looking to uh, provide support to some of its diaspora and economic interests throughout the region. What is it about that activity that, that concerns India? We see China as a threat along our continental border, but we have an advantage in the maritime area which is we really we can really be in a position to provide security to keep the energy lines open for everybody it's not just india it's international waters so all commercial ships can transit freely which includes chinese ships as well so india geographically and because we are based in the region we actually in a way have um, you know provided that uh, uh, security for chinese ships to move through the indian ocean regions from non-traditional security actors like piracy the the reason that china wants to be able to secure its own energy lines is that that tomorrow in case of a conflict either with the united states or with india or any of its partners it should have it should be in a position to secure its own energy lines and not be dependent on an adversary to secure its energy lines going to beijing between middle east and beijing and that is why it needs to be present in the re- in the region but for india who already is feeling a lot of pressure in the continental area and which looks at the maritime domain as an advantage and that advantage is neutralized by china becoming that present or maintain sustaining its presence in the indian ocean region we really don't have an advantage if we were to go to war again so it is really on threat and the second is we see ourselves India sees ourselves as a dominant or a prominent power in the Indian Ocean region. And with China coming into the uh, theater, that kind of negates it, that we become at least equal or we become at the same level or I wouldn't say lower or higher, but the possibility that China can secure its own energy lines, the possibility that China can provide this amount of security that India can, possibility that China can become a prominent power in the Indian Ocean region takes away the advantages that India has today in the strategic sense of it. Mm. So getting back to what I was talking about before with the string of pearl strategy, that's where we've seen China investing in a lot of uh, port facilities and uh, uh, infrastructure along the Indian Ocean, literal. You've, you've written about some of these projects and how they might afford China an added strategic advantage in its rivalry with India. Could you break this down for me and describe what some of these projects are that China is involved with and how exactly in real terms on the ground would that would China's presence in these infrastructure projects advantage China in the region? 
on the Indian Ocean region, it's uh, more of a competition and not rivalry yet. On the in in probably the border region in South Asia, it's 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 more of a rivalry. Um, in the Indian Ocean region, well, China wants to be able to secure its own sea lanes, but uh, you can the moment China sends it, its military ships into the region, it becomes too it becomes too threatening, it becomes too contentious, right? So the fear is facilities for dual purposes that it can be built for commercial reasons, but should a time for a conflict arise, it can be used for military as well. So the ports, port access, port access, right? Because the whole thing boils down to whether China can sustain itself in the Indian Ocean region or not, which is the connecting line between its energy sources and its markets back home. So in this theater, how can it sustain itself if it if it cannot? support its troops or resupply and maintenance. It has to be, it can send as many ships into the Indian Ocean it wants to, but till the time it cannot maintain or sustain a, a, a presence in the Indian Ocean region, it doesn't have really, can't be called really an Indian Ocean power. Also kind of connects back to ch- something China has been articulating very clearly in the last five years, which is to say it wants to be a maritime power. It wants to be a global Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Maritime power. And there is no denying in China's own documents that to be a maritime global power, it has to have a a sustaining presence in all the waters. And Indian Ocean is definitely a key area because of the energy lines. So... The the concern is that the ports it's building, which is really on the island countries, right, uh, Sri Lanka, Mauritius, Maldives, Seychelles, going up to the eastern coast of Africa, that tomorrow if, uh, you know, these ports which are built by China and if they are, they do have lease on these uh, ports, what if it can turn dual for dual purposes, right? What if tomorrow for the possibility of an armed conflict, China uses it? Now, it's not going to be easy because these are ports built in the territories of sovereign nations. So it's not going to be China cannot just wake up one day and be like, oh, I'm turning the port of Colombo into my military station or a military facility. It's not going to happen. But it is strategic advantage, right? That the possibility, because you don't know at what environment, in what environment you are going to go into a conflict with China. If it is an environment where it's already the point of a war, then then China will have its means and ways of docking itself in ports that it already knows the uh, technicalities around it. It has built those ports. But that doesn't doesn't this situation imply that the relationship between these small islands like Seychelles, Mauritius and Maldives, that those those small nation states will then also become an opponent of India as well? If, if they're, if they're harbouring uh, the India's enemy, doesn't that make them also the in, uh, enemy of India? And will they be willing to actually take that step against uh, India? So one thing I, I I feel in terms of in China's whole policy and kind of strategy in the Indian Ocean region is that China is not competing with India. 
So it doesn't look at India as the competitor. It's competing with the United States. India is in the region. For us, China is competing with us. But for China, India is the regional kind of power that it has to manage. So when I have a lot of conversation with Chinese scholars, they feel, what are you offended about? Like, you know, we don't understand. Fine, we built a port in Gwadar or we built a port in Djibouti. How is it affecting you? Because from China's point of view, you are not my competition. You know, the United States is my competition and India feels you disregarded my strategic kind of interest by building this port in Gwadar. So I don't think so when China is, uh, you know, deepening its relationship with Bangladesh or Myanmar, it's actually targeted at India. It knows it has a byproduct of it, but it is really to maintain itself. The second part, which is would these countries allow? I mean, these are commercial initiatives, right? These None of this is military. And that is the whole concern that but overnight it can turn military if the point comes. Now, at what time and what environment these changes would come, you don't know. At this point, it's not just India or the United States. China doesn't want to go to war with anybody. China doesn't want to have any kind of military conflict with anybody. But it's signaling that I have a foothold, that I can respond if I want to. Whether China will do it or not, we are yet to see. And that only time will tell. But if if they are preparing for it, you have to prepare for it. I mean, from the point of view of military and strategic advantage, right? The fact that they might be able to respond, the fact that it can turn into one in itself is a point for you to kind of see what you have to do to secure your interest. And that's where it is. This whole picture is coming from. I don't think so. Anyone in India thinks that China tomorrow is going to turn the port of Colombo or Hambantota into military a facility overnight, but the fact that it can happen should the need arise from it. I'm sure you've heard many times the analogy of uh, the Chinese board game of Go and the encircling strategies rather than capturing strategies, and that's similar to what you're discussing here. Yeah, and also that you know for for China, it it functions in a little bit of a different structure and a framework than. A country like India, which is a democracy in the sense China for the longest time had a huge policy on no forward operating basis. It it was completely against it. And it didn't take much for China to go and set up that base in Djibouti. It happened pretty quickly. A decision was taken at the top end and they went and did it. Something like that would take years for in India's system to happen. It would have go through public discussions. There will be all kinds of voices. India cannot change its foreign policy options and choices as quickly as China can do. So it went China very quickly, rather within months, went from decades-old policy of no forward operating basis to yes forward operating basis. It's, it's, it's not just that China can make a quick decision. Yeah. Um, it's that China... Do, uh, when they don't use a democratic system, they don't have to face the problem that democracies do of changing governments every so so many years. They also don't have the a, a free and open media. So right. if there is if there are policy failures, not only do you not hear about it, but even if you do hear about right. it, um, the the media doesn't get to report right. on them or hold the government yeah. accountable to them. And also, when um, you have a centrally led government, you have the ability to marshal the whole of the the nation's resources for your particular strategy that will have continuity over government after right. government after government. Right. You can afford the long-term planning. You know what China is really doing in, in you know all of China's actions is nothing new. It's nothing different than any 
rising power throughout history has tried to do. So it's not really about China. It's about a rising power. The country in question today is, is China, and that's why it becomes the point of discussion. But it's really about a new rising power in the 21st century when we have a different security architecture and a different order, and how do we react and manage that? For India now, it's there is a rising power, so change is going to come, whether you like it or not, because you know there will be changes. The two two powers now there's going to be there's somebody competing or challenging the United States in that in that tussle in that challenge. The question for India is how best to protect its own interests and not diminish its role. I feel sometimes the whole thing of India-China rivalries played so much that it feels like it's a question of India and China, but it's a question of India and a rising power and India's place in it in the security order. Well, in in that order, it's it's not just a rising China, but some people are saying that it's also a receding America okay. yeah. as well. So how how does the presidency of Donald yeah. Trump and the all this talk of isolationism, isolationism and a receding US power, how does that impact the way India sees this region and how its ability to create long term strategy? There definitely is a lot of question about America's interests and presence and whether it's withdrawing or it's retreating. But I see this question more as I travel through other countries than in India. I've seen the question, of course, primarily in the United States and the think tank community. I've seen it in Japan. I've seen it in Australia. I've seen it in Europe. Um, the question comes up in ASEAN countries now and then, especially in the Philippines or, or, or Singapore. In India, it's it's not actually that much of a, as much of a debate in terms of what it means. You know, yes, I don't think so. America is going to retreat. It is a concern India is watching, but the level of discussion is not the same in India as it is in in these other countries. Why do you think that is? And uh, for for a. For a change, because India's relationship with the United States in the Indian Ocean region, really on the maritime front, has been through uh, DOD, Department of Defense. It's been PACOM that has been the forefront of. And the presidency hasn't changed that in the sense the PACOM just changed its name from Pacific Command to Indo-Pacific Command, where you had a big speech where it said India is important to us. So India hasn't actually disappeared from America's uh, you know, uh, priorities for the region. India hasn't seen itself as being, you know, sided out. India has no real interest or in uh, or ambition in the Western Indian Ocean or South Pacific, where other countries come into the picture, where they are relying on American security. F- to secure their own interests. India doesn't have that. Mm. So you don't see whether America retreats to that extent or engages more doesn't affect as much. It's the Indian Ocean region, and we haven't seen that change in the Indian Ocean region. So we are fine on that. On political, on trade, yes, there has been some ups and downs, I mean, you know, in the State Department, but that's been that's that's been across. That's not India-specific. It, it has been, you know, just how this government has been or, you know, been has has acted on it. The defense relationship has been actually going pretty pretty well. Uh, we've signed agreements that we have struggled to sign in the last 11 to 15 years. Um, we are doing pretty well. We are doing exercises. There's more interactions. I think uh, there is more conversations today. There is an... Um, I think somewhere, at least the strategic community also sees Donald Trump's presidency as a uh, as an opportunity for India to again come up and say, look, you know, we don't know. There's an uncertain America. We just don't know which way it is going to go. There is a rising China. It wants a particular thing. But what 
their interaction affects the region where we live in so let's do something together so really leading and coming up like you know it's an it's it's a new opportunity that america has created now whether india takes advantage of that or not is a different question but it is really an opportunity for india to step up and be like take that regional lead right you know as at a time when there is immense support for india to do something like that there's from the small to middle to the big powers are looking at india to take that spot on so america hasn't really done much damage to india no wait one might suggest that the uncertainty of a trump presidency may actually support india India's keeping with its strategic autonomy Probably. you know <laughs> why should we align ourselves with someone who's so uncertain it works out quite well now you know that this question's coming so i'm going to give it to you right. where are we at on the quad <laughs> okay this is a question that I get all the time, so I'm, I'm going to. I'm not surprised. <laughs> and and it's 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 one of the first questions that come, uh, whether it's a private conversation or it's a public panel. What do you want the Quad to achieve? The Quad has its own importance, and the Quad will happen. It will happen, but it's going to take time. It will happen because, well, there's history, right? I mean, the whole Australia walking away in 2007, Australia says India was not into it. I We're mean, not particularly proud of that history. <laughs> <laughs> We'd like to move on from that. Please and, continue. And India's, India's for some reason stuck on that. But, uh, but we've had two rounds of discussions on the quad where at a at a uh, official uh, level there has been meetings between india japan australia and the united states uh then it that itself kind of shows that india is interested in figuring out the quad dynamic but the question really is for for just to just for a better kind of context and understanding what really what do you want the quad to achieve is the purpose of the quad to maintain the current security order, uh, which is then to say that uh, you have to check against any unilateral actions by a single country to change that, which in today's context happens to be China. If that is the end goal, then the question is, does the Quad countries independently or even collectively have the political will, the resources to coordinate that kind of a response, right? And if they do, then why didn't we see anything in the 2016 ruling, right? When the architecture that you're trying to defend, the United Nations, came out and said that all of China's claims, you know, it was a, it was a landmark judgment, it was in favor of Philippines against China, said China's claims do not stand. Forget the Quad, independently, not a single country could do anything about it. Take India out of the equation is the three countries left are allies. It should be easier coordinating that. We did not see anything coming out of that. Do you think that the response from the Philippines government actually had an impact on that? Definitely. It had factors. But then but then the fact is that if you're going to base the success or the survival of Quad into that, then it's very easy to break it apart. Then you're giving China one moment to discredit four countries who can work together and do something, right? Then you couldn't do anything about the South China Sea. So what is the purpose of you? What really are you trying to achieve? And and if that is also the answer from an Indian point of view, we we do not have the resources to respond to China every time it does something in the South China Sea. It's just not possible. So India will not get into something like that. And if that is not the end goal of the Quad, but then what really is the end goal? What are you trying to achieve from this, from the Quad? I feel the Quad 
because of the way we talk about it has become more of a limiting factor that is kind of, you know, it says, oh, uh, you know, the quad is not happening. So the Indo-Pacific is not true. But, you know, quad, quad and Indo-Pacific, they're not synonymous. These are, these are factors in, 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 a, in a larger theater. So the success or progress the quad makes does not depend on, does not determine whether Indo-Pacific is a strategy or not. So Indo-Pacific, quad will happen. It will happen in its own time. But if you're going to put that much of importance on something like the Quad between four countries, which have fundamental differences on how we look at things, America does phone offs. The rest of the three countries do not do phone offs. We just say we sail by it. There are fundamental differences on legally on a lot of things. Then you're just put it, placing it up for failure, right? Like it's so. So do do you think that the Quad actually does have some? Um something that it can achieve? And, and if so, what shape would it take? I, I, I think Quad definitely has a purpose. I think, you know, Quad is a Quad is also a great signaling mechanism that, you know, that countries with such divergences and fundamental differences will come together to protect something that they believe in, that they have a common vision and that one country cannot come in and do something. But if so you know, it's signaling commitment to so, values? Or? So signaling, yes, yeah, signaling that commitment to a, a rules-based order. That's what we hear, right? That mm. There will be changes. There's acknowledgement that there will be changes, but not really, not really that you know it's going to be a military kind of a block that will come together and stop anybody who's trying to change. It's more going to be about okay, if the change is coming, then it's not going to be one or two voices leading the change. It's going to be every player that matters. It is it is really coming together of four countries to protect uh, the security or security order and signaling, but. But even on that, like, I think there are other things that while Quad figures out its dynamics because it has history. And also don't forget that all four countries have its own independent relationship with China. The Quad question today revolves around China, whether it's about China or not, regardless. And um, all four have a different dynamic with China. India and Japan has border issues. For United States, it's its next competitor. For Australia, you have your own debate about how China is influencing through funds and kind of, you know, different all kinds of... The foreign interference. Yeah, the foreign and interference. we also have... The, there are our largest trade partners. Well, so there's exactly. many layers so, to this. So there are, there are different dynamics on this. And all four of these countries have to have a relationship with China, whether you like it or not. And that's the other thing about Indo-Pacific, that... It, just because a country has a China policy doesn't mean it it does not have an Indo-Pacific strategy. It's These are two parallels. You know, you will have an Indo-Pacific strategy. You will have a China strategy. But you cannot ignore China. Everybody has trade relations. We have cultural ties. We have border issues with it. You have to keep dialogue on. You okay, cannot they're, ignore they're also that. a legitimate yeah. actor in the region. Yes, we just have differences on how exactly. we think that region should work. And just because you have a China strategy doesn't undermine your Indo-Pacific. Just because you have an Indo-Pacific strategy doesn't make you an enemy of China. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And so to step outside of the quad, which is, I think we could talk, talk about for hours, uh, we've recently seen, uh, it was in May this year actually, that we saw Prime Minister Modi meet with President Widodo of Indonesia and they made a statement that indicated uh, increased strategic cooperation uh, with a particular focus on the Indo-Pacific and maritime security. What, in your opinion, is the potential of this relationship for India? Where are the synergies and where are the challenges in satisfying that potential? Um, Indonesia is uh, definitely becoming an important partner for India in its in this kind of maritime security. We have uh, we do a coordinated patrol and also now an annual exercise uh, with Indonesia along the um, Bay of Bengal uh, region. Uh, Indonesia is um, is an important player in maritime security. It has. 
uh, it's located with not just the Malacca Straits, but also the alternate routes into the Indian Ocean regions with Sunda, Lombok, and Ambai Straits. And uh, for India, Indonesia, when President Jokowi came to power, he talked about Indonesia becoming the fulcrum of, you know, the Indo-Pacific strategy and that more emphasis on maritime security. So India sees a lot of convergences with Indonesia because it's strategically located. It's a big power. It's 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 a sizable country. It's a big power. It has its potential. Um, Asian power, again, for India, it's right at the right at the cusp of the Pacific and the Indian Ocean region. During this visit, there was a mention of building the port uh, in Sabang, which is in Indonesia. And Indonesia, as I mentioned, is very close to Indian islands of Andaman and Nicobar, Andaman and Nicobar group of uh, group of islands, and so there is more of a synergy to see what can be done. Indonesia again needs infrastructure, and in, in India is trying to do projects together. Uh, uh, so Sabang is one of the first cases where I think we'll see if we can build something there. Um, the challenges are in terms of different forms of uh, different structures and formats. Uh, Indonesia has even after President Jokowi came to power and talked about this whole re- reviving uh, Indonesia as a maritime country and it should be at the fulcrum of the Indo-Pacific strategy. We didn't see so much of an interaction between Indonesia and the rest of the world. We're seeing it now. So, you know, difference in foreign policies and there will be and the whole question of ASEAN, it's one of the biggest countries in ASEAN. ASEAN has its own relationship with China and the views it takes. It's, it could I mean, India has its own relationship with ASEAN. So there would be there would be challenges in terms of, you know, Indonesia too is balancing. Most of the smaller countries also, Indonesia is not a small country but most of the ASEAN countries and the islands don't want to be caught up in this uh, in this competition between India and China. They don't want to be having to choose a side. They don't want to be saying that I will only work with China or I will only work with India. China has won some projects in Indonesia and now it's working with India. So there is there is an interest. We like I mentioned, we have coordinated patrols. They they border our because of the Andaman Seas. They border uh, our uh, maritime boundary uh, boundary line, and there there is an interest to maintain and have interactions with Indonesia. So we are starting with more dialogues and more interactions to see where it can it can really go. And and what is the importance of the Andaman and Nicobar Islands to India that it would have such a focus on um, supplying these islands and developing these islands in its relationship with Indonesia? The Andaman and Nicobar Islands are um, actually pretty far, about twelve hundred kilometers from the mainland. It sits really close to the Straits of Malacca. The Straits of Malacca is the entry point and the connecting bridge between Indian Ocean and the Western Pacific. And the islands provide India a platform for all of its outreach into Southeast Asia. It allows for great surveillance as well. It can really become the springboard for... Um, for India's engagements in the in the in the east but there has been a debate in India for for a very long time in terms of you know what role does the Andaman and Nicobar Islands pl- play because it's not as developed as it should be to have the kind of military engagements that we talk about so it does have a base but it's more like what is termed as a strategic outpost instead of a forward operating base and there are a lot of challenges in developing the islands which are um, environmental in a and we have indigenous tribes there and they, the islands haven't been touched. Almost 94% of the island uh, has forest cover and you have only about 6% f- uh, for revenue and agriculture. So really, how do you build infrastructure there without disturbing the ecological and the environment side of it, protecting the tribes and converting into the strategic assets that they have the potential to be? Can this potential be tapped into? And then that's a decision that 
New Delhi has to take in terms of fine, you develop the islands, but what do you want to do with the islands? Is it to kind of cement your relationship with the East? Is it to project further power out into the Indian Ocean region? If that is so, the maritime vision has to exist for it too, because the islands will take a lot of energy and capital to develop, but it has huge potentials for India to project power for surveillance, to to really uh, develop its own capabilities in becoming a more of a dominant power in the Indian Ocean region. Darshana, if I don't stop here, I'm just going to ask questions all afternoon. So thanks again for coming in and speaking to us on the National Security Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This is fun. And thank you very much to Darshana. I hope you enjoyed that podcast as much as I enjoyed recording it. Uh, Don't forget, we would very much like to hear your thoughts on some of the things that we discussed, particularly the quad. This is one of the issues that really fires people up. As you heard, we really had a good conversation on that issue. What do you think of the quad? Is Is the quad a viable strategy vehicle for the four countries involved? Will it just be seen by China as a form of containment? And is this something that Australia in particular should be pushing towards, not forgetting our history the last time it came up, and will we get enough out of it to justify the effort of making it happen? Let us know, get in touch, hit us up on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum or on Facebook using Asia Pacific Policy Society or by email using podcast at policyforum.net. And while you're there, Don't forget to subscribe because I will let you know now in the coming weeks we are going to have Mr. James R. Clapper, the former director of national intelligence for the United States in the studio talking to us. We are going to be discussing Russia and its recent influence operations and hacking of the 2016 presidential election. We'll be talking about the impact of the Trump presidency on US politics and the intelligence community. And we'll also be discussing uh, the relationship between the United States and Australia. And we will be releasing this podcast to our subscribers before we release it to anyone else. So now is the time to hit that subscribe button to make sure you get that podcast as soon as possible. And while you're there, we'd also love a rating, of course. Listen out for details of our coming first live recorded podcast that will be coming to you soon and I'm looking in your direction Mr Digby Howis don't forget to listen out for the regular policy forum podcast that will be coming to you this Friday and we'll be back in another two weeks with another national security podcast speak to you then Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.